All right. Can we open the Bible to Philippians 3? I want to read to you more or less the same verses that we read last week, but this week we're going to zoom in in detail on one verse. We're going to focus on verse 3 and um, open that up a little bit. But let me read to you from verse 1 to 7. Page 1712. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Again and again, he tells them, I want you to be happy as believers. I want you to be happy. He keeps telling them that all the way through. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So he's obviously repeating himself. And this is what he's repeating himself when he's talking to them about. It's this subject. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the dogs. I don't know if you've read the New Testament before um, or what your expectations are of religion or of faith or of the Bible. But um, it is full of um, choice language and terms and ideas that are very provocative. And here's Paul, the great apostle called Saint Paul, writing about people in the church who he thinks are, have no place there. Uh, he calls them dogs. He says, look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And you're asking yourself, well, who on earth could get that kind of um, harsh treatment from him? And the answer is not people in the church who are kind of evil people as we would think of it. They were actually very, very religious people in the church community who were going around telling people, if you want to be a real follower of Jesus, you need to get circumcised. Jesus was Jewish, and to be a believer in Jesus, you need to therefore, uh, in certain senses, become Jewish. And Paul, who was a Jew of Jews, as he's about to tell us, says that's complete trash, it's complete rubbish. He says, I've turned my back on all of what I thought was goodness, external goodness, so that I could have Jesus, which is what he's about to say. So he says, because we are the circumcision. This is the verse I want us to look at. Who worship by the Spirit of God and glory or boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in whether we do religious things like get circumcised. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. He says, I can meet them in their own game. I can meet them on the, the grounds that they're speaking to you. He says, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, after birth that is, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, I was the model Jew. And then he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. At the heart of the Christian faith, he says, is this great exchange. Where you not only give up all the sin which clings to you and makes you feel guilty before God, you also give up all of your good works and you lay it all and say, I don't want any of that, I only want Jesus. What I want us to do today is look at this verse in the middle. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now what Paul is doing for us is something incredibly important. He is, it's one of those verses in, in the Bible which kind of forms like a definition of Christianity. And whenever you see such meaty ideas packed into one little statement, it, 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 it bears us spending a little bit of time to open it up. 
We are the circumcision, he says. So what he's trying to do is say, look, all these people have these ideas, these wrong ideas about what Christianity is about. Some people think it's this, some people think it's that. And those guys think it's all about um, following the Old Testament law and getting circumcised. And he says, no, I want to now define for you what the real thing is, what authentic spirituality is, what true Christianity is. Um, And I think we need to do the same work constantly and repetitively and over and over again today. You see, some of the um, ways that Christianity gets twisted, I'm not assuming everyone in here is a Christian, by the way, and you might have all kinds of preconceptions about what Christianity is. You may never have even questioned them. Like, where did they come from? Were they ideas that you got from school? Were they ideas from a particular friend you spent time with? Were they ideas that you just imbibed from the media? You may have all kinds of uh, prejudices or preconceptions about what the faith is about. And obviously, there are many Christianities. It's obvious just looking at the way different Christians dress or the buildings that they meet in or those kinds of things. There are many Christianities. Um, Some of them are so far beyond the pale that we call them cults. Um, this, this week I was walking home and there's a couple of ladies who regularly knock on the doors in, my, in the, the flats where we live. And so I know where they're coming from. And this lady literally just stopped me in the street and says, do you read the Bible? And I don't know, I don't know why she asked me that. And I, obviously I said, yes, I do. Um, which is encouraging for you guys. And, uh, <clears throat> but I knew who she was. But at the time she hadn't tweaked who I was because we, we have met before. She and I, um, <clears throat> she, we, have, we have gone head to head. And she, she asked me, do you read the Bible? And so we started to, to engage about well, what, what do you think it means and who do you think Jesus is? And obviously it came out, she began to realize the penny drop that I'm a Christian. And obviously I, I knew that she also, that she was a Jehovah's Witness. And by the end of the conversation, um, I, I felt, I, know, I had a few of these conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses you know, it's a version, a version of Christianity in that it came from Christianity. But they have a different idea who, of who Jesus is, which means that it isn't Christianity at all. They have a translation of the Bible which is butchered, where every verse that talks about the divinity of Jesus has been changed. And I know just enough Greek to know how badly butchered their version of the Bible is from the original. And so I feel a sense of compassion and sadness when I talk to them because it's like, A veil has come over their eyes. They've been sort of duped into not open thinking about really testing the ideas, but just absorbing what comes from the kind of, what's it called, watchtower literature or whatever which they receive. So obviously some versions of Christianity are so obviously false that none of you are likely to ever get caught up in them. But then there are the versions of Christianity which are not so obviously false, which are the really, really dangerous ones. Um, one example of that, which is massively prevalent across the world at the moment, is what has come to be known as the prosperity gospel, which is basically a message that um, God never would never allow you to go through any hardship or suffering, and that the more you love him and the more you even give to him, and particularly finances, the more he will shower blessings upon you. And it's a message which um, has taken root in, in nations where the economy is particularly bad because people are grabbing hold to any hope and they're having this twisted version which looks in so many ways like the real thing and even uses real verses from the Bible and stuff, but so twists the essence of what the Christian life is about that it becomes all about worshipping money and not worshipping Jesus. 
And so it's a more subtle way that Christianity changes. Now, I, from, from some of you, the, the dangerous thing is not so much that you'll get pulled into being a Jehovah's Witness or even into the prosperity stuff. The dangerous thing is that you would have an idea of Christianity that it is, that it is too heavy to bear. That you would have an idea of Christianity as something which is too heavy to bear. Where would you have got that idea from? It may be that you grew up in a Christian home with parents who were particularly strict and difficult. Met many people who walked away from the faith in their teens because the version of Christianity that they received from their parents had none of the delight of what it means to know Jesus and all of the heaviness of you shouldn't do this and you should do that. Or maybe that was true of your schooling or something like that. Or maybe it's because you watched a friend go through those experiences. A lot of people can have these wrong associations, even from childhood, of an image of a faith which is heavy and difficult and full of unhappiness and self-denial and misery and pressure that you have to put on yourself. Or perhaps you're the kind of person who's tried to go that way and failed as everyone inevitably does at some point, and crashed out. And you've never really touched what it means to have joy in, in knowing God and that lightness and that happiness and that freedom that comes through knowing God. The result is usually when people go those, down that road is at some point they tap out, which is a wrestling term, isn't it? When someone's got you in a hold and you tap and say, okay, enough, don't break my arm. And you think that was your experience of the faith. Like you felt like you were in a wrestle, in a chokehold, and you had to tap out, or maybe you um, were just miserable, or maybe you, for a long time, were just faking it. So you were trying to look like a Christian on the surface, but living a double life. And, and in, the, in the week, when no one else was looking, the last thing that could be said of you is that you were walking with Jesus, that you were in any way embodying the faith that you professed. What's going on when people have this idea of Christianity? Something has to be wrong. Something has to be wrong. Because when you read the New Testament, Jesus said that what he wanted to draw people into was something easier than what they'd known. They'd known harsh, difficult religion. And he says, I want you to experience the ease of what it means to walk with me. And also, the, new, the pages of the New Testament are full of joy and happiness. I mean, we've been seeing that all the way through the letter to the Philippians. People just so, Paul just so incredibly exquisitely joyful in his normal experience of, of walking with Jesus in day-to-day life. And so you think, if you've, if you've never experienced that, or if you've never experienced the ease that comes from being in friendship with Jesus, then you haven't tasted the real thing. You can't have. Somehow we have to get back to what Jesus said was a childlike faith, a simple faith. Something sweet and full of joy and full of lightness and something that is effective in which your life does actually change but not because you're grinding out by the sweat of your brow but because there's a grace, an ease, a a kind of like a lubrication in the way that God is working in your life. And this is what Paul wants to bring us back to. So on the one hand, he is attempting to destroy bad ideas about the faith that you think is Christianity. 
Ideas that spread like gangrene in the church. That's why he comes down so heavily against the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators. In Paul's mind, there is nothing more dangerous to the health and life of a church such as ours than that people get infected with this harsh way of thinking about who God is and what he wants from us. On the other hand, the flip side to that is, he says, here's here's the real thing. Here's the authentic thing. And if I could boil it down to just a couple of expressions for you, so you can roughly chart where we're going, it really comes down to this. It's not about you, and it is all about him, meaning Jesus. That's what Paul basically says here. I'm going to try and open up to you this verse, and I hope that the the lights will switch on for some of you who've been struggling with this kind of thing. It's not about you, it's all about him. Here's the first thing. True Christianity is all about his power and not yours. It's all about his power and not yours. Because he says, we're the circumcision. In other words, this is the real thing. Who worship by the Spirit of God. That's the first statement he gives us. Who worship by the Spirit of God. Now, I want you to think about how you approach challenges in life and how we all approach them very differently. There are some among us at one end of the spectrum who are incredibly high achievers. So when you, you meet challenges that seem insurmountable, you're the kind of uber-competent person who breaks them down into their small steps and charts a plan for hour-by-hour productivity plan for the next 10 years of your life. And you are, you're known for your record of achievements because year after year, you have, you have tallied up letters after your name and badges that you can wear like scouts badges. And you're the kind of uber-competent person who rarely meets a challenge that you cannot surmount and, and overcome. You're fitter than everyone else. You've watched less TV than everyone else. <laughs> you, you, are, you read more books and you are paid more than everyone else because you can do it. There are people among us who are like that. Then there's people just moving more slightly to the center of the spectrum here who see a challenge and think, yeah, and run at it for about 10 minutes and then like sink and like defeat and fatigue and failure. And your whole life is littered with things that you tried and failed, tried and failed, tried and failed. Because initially you think, oh, I can do this. And then and then eventually you run out of steam, you run out of energy, you run out of gas, and then that, that's it, you crash and burn. And then there are other people, other people, just of the end of the spectrum, who just gave up pretty much from the minute they were born. They were like, just so phlegmatic and chilled out in life. They're like, I don't really mind what I do or where I go or what I achieve. And they drift through life with the currents of life, never really lifting their head, trying to attempt anything, just conceding defeat before they were even challenged and procrastinating, burying ahead. And I'm sure probably all of us span the spectrum in different parts of your life. You feel confident in this area, weak in this area. Now, the reason why I'm framing that for you, because I'm sure you can recognize all of those tendencies in you, is that when it comes to true faith, when it comes to true Christianity, when it comes to true religion, all of these reactions are totally wrong. On the one hand, you've got the guy who says, I can do that. You see what, it, what true commitment to Jesus looks like and you, you draw up an image of what the real radical disciple is and you think, I can do that. And so you're the kind of Everest climbing Christian who wants to go for it um, with full gusto. And then there's the other ones of us who look at it and think, there's that and that's too difficult. And you've given up even before you've, 
even before you started. And you, we naturally assume that what God wants is this. It's the kind of the gritty, determined, powerful person to be part of his church and his kingdom. And what I'm trying to say to you is, look, they're both wrong because they both have in common one thing, that it's all about me. Both of them are looking inwards on what I must do, looking for the internal resources to live the Christian life, and the heart of the faith is therefore ignored, neglected, and overlooked. Because what Christianity says from day one is, you can't do it, you need power. Why do we need power? Why do we need power to live a life for God's glory, uh, a life that's changed and transformed? Let me tell you a few things that we don't need power for. We don't need power to do the externals of what Christianity looks like. Going to church, committed to your life group, going to the community meetings on a monthly basis, uh, engaging in your daily quiet times. You don't necessarily need the power of the Holy Spirit to go through the externals of all that because all of that is easy to fake. If you've got enough self-control, if you're a disciplined kind of person, you can fake all of it. And, and the heart of your faith can be totally devoid of any spiritual life. You don't need the power of God to do the externals of Christianity. You don't actually need the power of God to just learn the knowledge of what Christianity is about. I know the first time, if you've ever walked in church, you sing songs, you hear words like Hosanna, Hosanna, and you think, what the heck are we talking about? I've got no idea what any of this means. I see the King of Glory coming on the clouds with fire. What kind of faith is this? And of course, there's a whole content background and meaning to all the words that we sing. But actually, it doesn't take that long to learn. You know, when, when the coffee revival started, you know, it hit London a bit later than it hit the, the United States. It began kind of in Seattle, didn't it, with the Starbucks and all those guys, which now are considered beyond the pale. Like, no, who drinks Starbucks? But back then, it was like, whoa, you guys really are mastering the coffee thing. And people had to learn a whole new vocabulary. They wanted a, you know, triple venti, half calf, you know, breve cappuccino and none of the words meant anything to us at one point and we had to learn them all if you wanted to have the drink that just fitted your personality uh, so as you walk to work you can just we can learn the stuff and it's the same with Christianity you come to church long enough you'll learn the words you'll sing the songs you'll know the lingo and you'll you'll fit in no problem you don't need the power of God for that you don't actually even need the power of God to change your behavior all that much because actually people can you become like the people you hang out with over time, and there are all kinds of just ordinary psychological techniques and habit-forming uh, disciplines that you can engage in to change your behavior. You think, I don't like this about my life, I can change. And actually, people can change to a huge extent just by the power of being in a community and accountability and, and all those kinds of things. You don't need power from God necessarily to change your behavior to a certain degree. You could do it. So what on earth do we need the power of God for? And what Paul says, look, here's, here's what real Christianity is. He says, we worship by the Spirit of God. Here's the one thing you cannot change about yourself. You cannot change your heart. You cannot change your heart, firstly, before anything else, to love God and to worship him with sincerity and adoration, and passionate zeal. You can't do that 
You can fake all the other stuff, but the heart of your life will be an absence of genuine love for the living God unless it is by the power of God to change you. Now, who of us would be satisfied with a fake Christianity? This is why when, they, when guys come along and tell you this is what the Christian life looks like, you must get circumcised or you must do this, that, and the other, and all of you have this list in your mind of what Christianity means, you can realize how fake that solution is. How empty it is. Even when God gave Israel the command to be circumcised in the Old Testament, even then, he made it very clear that's not enough. He says, He said to them in Deuteronomy 10, it's really early in the Bible, he says, I want you to circumcise your hearts. In other words, I want heart transformation, not just the externals of faith. So for us, you could master all the externals. You know, what Christians love to call quiet time, which is like you engage in daily disciplines of prayer and studying the word, or accountability, where you are in a small group of people where you hold each other accountable in, in terms of your life and lifestyle, or you can... Some people prescribe for transformation, you need a certain liturgy in church where you engage in worship of this style. And other people say, no, if we really want the life and and power, we need to have no liturgy and we need to have total freedom. And you see, all of these things are just external solutions because what Paul says, no, the thing we really need and the thing which you have if you are a believer in Jesus is the power of God, the Holy Spirit in your life changing you from the inside. Now, of course, there are going to be all kinds of consequences in how you live, what you look like, even the way you speak. All of that stuff changes. But friends, if you start there, you'll end up with a hollowness at the center of your being. But when you have encountered Jesus and he has poured his spirit out upon your life, the gift that he gave to the church, the result is heart transformation. We could trace these promises through the Bible, how he begins in Jeremiah 31, where it says, There'll come a time, it says, when none of you will say to each other, know the Lord, because everybody will know God, from the youngest of you to the greatest. In other words, there's going to be no hierarchies in the kingdom, because everybody is going to say, I have a personal knowledge of the living God, and I love him with all of my heart. Then what happens? Jesus comes, he dies on the cross, he rises from the dead, and just as he's about to ascend into heaven and commission his church to spread the gospel in all the world, he tells them in Acts 1.8, that they need to wait in Jerusalem until they receive power from on high. In other words, the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Now, when we hear the language of power, we think it's just about you know, the miraculous stuff which Jesus did and all the, those kinds of things. But do you know what the first result is when the Holy Spirit does fall on the church in Acts chapter 2? Do you know what the first thing that happens to them is? It says that they began telling the mighty works of God. In other words, they start becoming worshippers. Their hearts are lit up with passion for God. Friend, you cannot, I don't care how hard you try, your life will never meet with permanent change and real change unless your heart changes. And the only way your heart changes is when the Holy Spirit begins to remold you from the inside out. You might be frustrated with yourself, always hitting a wall. Do you know why? It's because you need grace from God. Later on in the Bible, when Paul says that we need to be filled with the Spirit, he says, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In other words, as God's Spirit moves upon his people, 
the first thing that happens is they start to love him more. This is the first thing you've got to understand about Christianity. True Christianity is about his power at work in your life, not how powerful you think you are or are not. And that is good news because God is at work in your heart. If you're a believer in Jesus, he is doing things in you that you'd be amazed to see the, the work unfold in the years to come. Here's the second thing he tells us, that true Christianity is about his achievements and not yours. So first thing, it's about his power and not yours. The second is it's about his achievements and not yours. He says, we're the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. The word glory just means boast. Now, here's what I want you to understand. If you struggle... I'm assuming now, speaking mainly to those of you who are Christians, if you struggle in day-to-day life to have joy and happiness and a sense of lightness in your daily experience of what it means to walk with Jesus, there's a good chance that you have never learned how to boast. I was listening to um, Andrew Wilson recently, a great theologian teacher, speaking on this whole theme. And largely what I'm about to say is lifted from him. He's just, it was so brilliant, so I'm... Um, please don't listen to that original talk. But um, he, he began by saying that few subjects that Paul, there were few subjects that Paul was more interested in than boasting, and few subjects that modern day Christians are less interested in than boasting. Because we hear the word boasting, and you immediately conjure up ideas of arrogance and Donald Trump and all kinds of like ugliness, right? So what on earth am I talking about when I say that boasting is at the heart of the Christian faith? Let's try and and unfold this a little bit. You've got to understand firstly a bit of the context. When Paul talked about what it means to boast in Jesus, he was talking within the context of the ancient world when boasting was an understood idea. What was boasting back then? Well, there was something that you did when you were in danger, particularly in in a battle context. Facing the opposing lines of battle. You remember how battles used to be fought? Two in a field, two lines of soldiers meeting face to face, shouting at one another. The closest thing you get to it these days is watching the All Blacks stand up against any opponents that they um, are, are put against in rugby. That was, that was when the big people began to boast. It was a, a reassurance to yourself that you can win. And articulating the reasons why you think you can win in battle. So actually the Old Testament, which is full of stories of battles, great battles and contests, is full of boasting. Do you remember when Goliath, that massive man, confronted David, um, that little runt boy, in 1 Samuel 17? He began by boasting and telling him that I'm going to give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. I'm going to feed you to them. And David threw back just as good as he, as he heard because the first thing he did was tell him again, no, I'm going to feed all of the Philistines' bodies to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And he could have come up with something original, but he, he, just, he, he echoed it back and he said, here's the reason why, because I believe in the living God. Boasting as they were, as they were kind of standing face to face about to engage in, in a battle to the death. There's a story in, uh, much later in Old Testament history in Isaiah 36 where... Um, the Assyrian army has come to conquer Jerusalem. And there's a man there who's kind of like the military field commander, which in Assyrian terminology is called the Rabshakeh. And uh, he's standing before 
the Israelites, and he says to them, uh, he says to them in verse, Isaiah 36, 12, he says, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and, and, put, and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed to, with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? This is how the ancient world engaged in boasting. They said, you're going to eat poo and you're going to drink urine. And that's how this whole thing is going to play out in the days to come. Because they were going to siege the town until they had nothing to eat and nothing to drink. That was boasting. There's another story in 1 Kings where um, a Syrian king called Ben-Hadad has come to, to defeat Israel again. And uh, Ben-Hadad says to them, he says, your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children are also mine. And Ahab, who's the king, answers with this excellent response. He says, let, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. Isn't that an excellent response? Actually, more kudos to him than to David, right? He says, let the, one who, the one who boasts is the one who, who gets at the end of the day to take his armor off. In other words, the one who's not been killed in battle. You're the only one who really gets to boast at the end of the day, despite your great strength and your power and your army. There's loads of boasting in popular depictions of, of battles and warfare. Gladiator, at my signal, unleash hell. You know, assuming that Romans have hell to unleash. That's kind of the assumption. It's the boast. We have the might of Rome in order to conquer, conquer these barbarian hordes. At my signal, unleash hell. The best, one of the best speeches in all film history, when Braveheart stands, uh, William Wallace stands in front of the Scottish, um, or the, the, well, these guys who are in their dresses and they're carrying, <laughs> carrying sticks, and he's, and he's trying to rally them. And he, he says to them that dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day? You're disappointed I'm not doing the accent, aren't you? <laughs> from this day to that for one chance. Just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they may never take our freedom. <laughs> so this is a boast, right? I've had enough. That's enough. Okay. There's, and just in case you think this is something that only, only belongs on the battlefield, actually, one, the best moment in all film history is in, in the film uh, Taken, when Liam Neeson, <laughs> right? When Liam Neeson has had his um, daughter uh, abducted, or uh, uh, what's the word, kidnapped for um, the sex trade, and uh, he ends up on the phone with the, the kind of the mafia, the Russian mafia boss who's done, done it. I actually don't know if he's Russian, so apologies to anyone of Russian origin, but the bad guy. And he says, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you, I will not pursue you, but if you don't, I will look for you, I will find you, and I will kill you. And then the long pause, good luck. <laughs> this is boasting, guys. I'm hoping you're beginning to get an idea of what it is we're talking about. A boast is an expression of your ultimate confidence. We see it in sports. Football, te- uh, 
fans boast in their teams. Every chant you see from the stands is a boast in their teams. We're England. We always lose. <laughs> we have no right to boast. But we're the best at it. People do it in day-to-day life. They boast of, even subtly, just dropping in what school they went to. They say the one thing that all CrossFitters have in common is that they always mention that they go to CrossFit. People are boasting all the time of the things that they do or the things they have achieved in order to win battles in just day-to-day life. You present your CV, it is a form of a boast. When you go into your interview, you are boasting. You're saying, my confidence rests in my skills, my abilities, my achievements, so that I can perform the task that is being put before me. Now, friends, this is why this is so significant for the Christian life. Because Paul says there's basically two ways you can boast as a Christian. On the one hand, you can boast in all of your achievements, which Paul says, look, if, if that was what we had to do, I could do that. That's when he said, if anyone else has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. None of you come even close to Paul. Just want to make that clear, friends. He says, I was circumcised. I was of the he- Hebrew of Hebrews. I, I was more zealous than anyone, more passionate, more educated than anyone. I was the best of the best. And he's not being arrogant at that point. That was factual. He was that guy. That's one way you can boast. And actually, Christians do that even in a subtle way when they get their joy from how well their life is progressing as a Christian. And then he says, no, this is what true Christianity is. We worship by the Spirit of God. We have his power in us. And we boast in Christ Jesus. The only thing that you can boast about when you stand before God is what Jesus has done for you, his achievements, not what you have done for yourself. Why is that so incredibly powerful? Because, friends, we're not dealing with future uncertainties. When, you know, when, when the Brexit vote was coming up, there were many predictions flying in different directions about possible outcomes and what would be the future results. People think they know the future and they boast in their knowledge or their ability to predict the future. But here's the the wonderful thing about the Christian boast. The Christian boast is based on something that happened once in history, recorded history, never to be repeated again with enough power for all time to change the course of history. The death of Jesus Christ for our sins and his resurrection from the dead to give us new life. So when a Christian boasts, they are not boasting in a a possible uncertain future. They are boasting in in something that is more certain than yesterday's news. It's basically a news report. And friends, that is incredibly important because most Christians lose their joy because ever so subtly in the back of your head, there is the voice of the accuser. Do you know the word Satan just means accuser? And his number one tactic to destroy your faith is to cut you down at the knees by making you feel unworthy. By making you feel like you have no place in God's family by making you feel like it's just too hard. Boasting is saying to Satan, Jesus did it all. I have no need to stand on my own merit. He did it all. 
His death was enough for me. His blood is more powerful than any accusation you can bring against me. For those of you who think, who are on the outside looking in and thinking, well, what is Christianity about? And you've assumed it's about life transformation by changing yourself so that eventually you'll be good enough to be in God's presence. I am telling you that has nothing to do with Christianity. You have completely misunderstood the faith. And I think that's wonderful news because the real thing is so much better. It's that Jesus died for you to cleanse you completely from the inside out and to what the New Testament calls atone for your sins. Be an atoning sacrifice. Cover them up so that it was as though you never sinned. And all you have to do is ask God for forgiveness. That is all you must do. True Christianity is about his achievements and not yours. Here's the last thing. True Christianity is about his righteousness, not yours. Here's where he brings a kind of a negative in. It's the last statement. With a circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, glory or boast in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. It's a negative. Now this brings us to the ongoing struggle of the Christian life. Let me just paint for you a picture of how things often unfold for Christians. First of all, at some point you became or become a Christian. And it begins with a sense of an awareness of your sin. Conviction, we call it. A sense of seeing yourself in, in the light of God's holiness and knowing that you, you, you are not perfect enough. And coming to God and asking for forgiveness and then feeling clean. Feeling totally clean. Feeling like the things that you've done wrong have actually been wiped away. That's the first thing that you experience when you become a Christian. And often what the result is intense joy and happiness. Most people... Or many people, not always, because it can be more gradual, but many people can f- feel an even an overnight change in their, in their understanding of themselves. They feel intense joy. Now, that gives birth to the second chapter of your kind of Christian life, which is that you begin to change and to grow. You want to obey God. It's the natural response that when you come into his family and you call God Father, you think, how do I please my Father? And you want to walk with him. You want to obey him. So your life begins to change. You care about speaking to him, so you start praying. You care about what he has to say to you, so you start studying his word. And you care about living a life that brings him glory and that pleases him, so your life does begin to change. You start changing, and it's a wonderful, it's a good thing. It's a natural thing, because we call it new birth. And when you are born into this new family, you, you have the new DNA inside you. And it naturally begins to express itself. You, you're a different person. That then moves into the third chapter. At some point, you realize, incrementally, bit by bit, you don't know how you got there, but at some point, you look at yourself and think, I've really, I've really changed. Like, there has been change in my life. It's like, have you ever had the experience of going out to sea on, on a boat or a vessel, and um, at first, it looks like you're barely moving. The land is right there, and you're looking, and you're thinking, what? You know, we're, we're making no progress. You look at the water and think, this is the slowest thing ever. And you lose concentration for a while. And then eventually you look back, you look around, and you realize the land is nowhere to be seen. And it's a weird experience when you're right out there in the open ocean. And, and if you've never experienced it, it's a bizarre thing. And you, and you think, wow, I've come a long way. And that happens to Christians at some point. You grow, you grow, you grow. And then you look back on your life, you think, I've, I've really grown. Look how far I've come. 
I didn't notice it that much. It was gradual, it was incremental. But I look back on my life and the things that I used to do, the things I used to be, a lot of those things are no longer true of me. And that's a good thing. But what it does is it then gives birth to the, the fourth thing, which is that now, friend, you're in danger. You were looking at Jesus when you first got saved and your heart was full of joy and happiness because you just looked at him and were amazed that you get to be forgiven and part of his family. But ever so subtly, now you're looking at yourself. At how far you've come or haven't come. And the result is that when you feel like you're making great strides, you're full of joy and happiness. And when you feel like you're, you're moving backwards, stumbling, falling, all the joy of the Christian life is sapped out of it. But in both cases, the problem is that you're looking at you. Just this, a couple of weeks ago, you know, we went to um, the conference in, in the US, in the United States. And when we're flying over there, we, um, we, we, had, we had problems with our flights. American Airlines had problems. They got us on the plane at 11 in the morning. We were sat on the plane for two hours. And there was engine troubles. So we were all uh, turfed off the plane. And we had to make a connecting flight when we got there. So we were getting a bit anxious. And they bundled us through. No one knew where we should go. They bundled us through eventually to a weird room in the middle of Heathrow Airport with no windows where, you, um, where there are crowds of people distressed and standing in queues, no idea how they're going to get on the next flight. So you stand there for a while and eventually we get up to the desk. And unfortunately, because Sian and I had been separated, we both ended up being, we, we had to find each other and then we ended up right at the back of the queue for people from that flight. And, uh, and we thought we were being smart by separating and we were like, one of us will find the queue first and get there ahead of the other. And then we were just like, no, this hasn't worked. We've lost each other. So we ended up right at the back. And we got to the, we got to the, um, the desk and this lady was like, <sighs> she's like, I'm sorry, the, I don't think I can get you on any flights. And then Sian unleashed hell. She, uh, <laughs> I, was, I was standing back uh, ashamed and just bowing my head. <laughs> While C took her on, she grabbed the monitor. She was like pointing at the next flight that we could get on. She was like, put us on that one. And the lady, the lady didn't really seem to know what she was doing. So C was teaching her how to do her job, which she's never done before. So they eventually said, okay, that's your flight. That's your flight. Run, run, run. It's about to go. So we had to sprint across the other side of the airport. Um, and we managed to get to the gate for another flight, which was five hours after the one that we had supposed to be on. And uh, we get to the gate. And the room, the hall is totally empty because everyone's on the plane. And the lady was about to let us in, and then she starts going, I'm sorry, but there's no seats left on the plane. Uh, you're going to have to get another flight. And I stood there, and we, our hearts just sunk. Uh, we just waited and watched. There wasn't much we could do at that point. And then she was like, well, there are two seats left in business class, uh, but we'll have to upgrade someone first so that you can just go in the in economy. And so we were waiting, but the trouble was this flight was delayed. So eventually a supervisor came along, stood next to her, and was like, put them on the plane. And we were ushered through in this moment of like heavenly glory. <laughs> when for the first time in my life, I turned left. And I was like, I bet I couldn't believe what was happening to me. I was like, it was a bizarre experience. I was like dizzy with the sense of feeling so special. And we got to sit in business class. And uh, you get... You know, amazing treatment. But within seconds, C was loving it at this point. <laughs> she had the thing reclined. She had a glass of champagne. She was in the moment, just enjoying it. I, on the other hand, immediately began to struggle. Because I was like, 
First of all, we're the last ones on the plane, and everyone's delayed, and we're, it's like we've held them up. Secondly, I'm wearing my joggy bums that I put on in the other flight so that I'd be comfortable, and I, I look like a dog's dinner, and I'm here in business class. And thirdly, I'm sweating profusely from the run across Heathrow Airport, and I'm in business class. And so all these thoughts begin to crash on me. I think, basically, I'm thinking, I'm poor. <laughs> I, I don't belong here. This is, this is not my world. Like, I look around at the people in the room and think, you guys, you belong here. You paid for your tickets. I have no idea how much they cost you, but you are worthy, and I am not worthy. <laughs> Even when like, my, dinner, my dinner was delayed, they forgot to put it in the oven. The lady came up to me, very lovely air hostess, and was like, sorry, sorry. And I was like, no, I'm sorry. No, please, please, it's okay. And I was constantly feeling this sense of unworthiness on the flight. And of course, it, just a picture there. The, problem, the thing was, we didn't get on that flight because of worthiness or because we'd paid. We were on because of grace. You can put it like that. It was a free gift. So for me to then look at myself and feel unworthy is like what many Christians do. They sink into, into despair. Because you start to think, do I deserve to be here? That's what it means to look at the flesh. And Paul says, this is true Christianity. We put no confidence in the flesh. What's true, by the way, of my wife in business class is true of her in her Christian faith as well. As she always says, I'm God's favorite. <laughs> Puts no confidence in the flesh and just glories in her salvation. Friends, it's not that your life and lifestyle becomes irrelevant when you're a Christian. Sin is destructive. There's no question about it. It makes you unhappy. It grieves the Holy Spirit. It it reaps all kinds of um, wrong results in your life. It risks God chastising you. um, And it, it actually damages you and other people. So, of course, we want to be turning away from our sins continually. And also, godliness is of great benefit, the New Testament says. So the more you're growing, there are wonderful things that come as a result of that. Um, that the, God promises rewards as we grow. We experience deeper fellowship with, with God as we grow. And there's the, all the kind of fruit, the results of a life that is formed more and more to be like Jesus. So I'm not saying that your life as a Christian, your lifestyle as a Christian is irrelevant. This is not an excuse to just kind of um, turn away from God and just play the fool. It's not that at all. But despite all of this, the point is what Paul says is, as a Christian, you never stand before God. You never stand before him on the basis of, of the flesh. In other words, what you have done and who you are and how worthy you are to be there. He says, we put no confidence in the flesh. And this is Paul talking. He had more reason than you and me to be confident because the implication is we put all the confidence In Jesus. His righteousness. The life he lived instead of us. His ticket. That he gifted us to be in God's presence. Friends, I just want to say. If your faith becomes about you. It isn't just hard. It's actually impossible. You can fake it. You can grind it out for as long as you want, but eventually you're going to realize this is so exhausting. That's what religion feels like, and that's why Paul hated it. He says, look out for the dogs, the evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. But if your faith 
isn't about looking at you. It's all about looking at Jesus. The result is incredible peace and joy and happiness. You can wake up on any given day and you know that he's filled you with your spirit. Your heart is turned towards him. You boast in Jesus and his achievements for you. And you don't look at your own life and lifestyle. You look at him. And eventually, you'll, you become more like him. Some of you need to repent today, not just of sin, but of your righteousness, of your attempt to be something before God. And come back to the simplicity of what it means to be a Christian, which is faith, belief in Jesus. Amen? Amen.